Coming up next on Inside Golf Podcast, Travelers Championship. Need a little rebound from U.S. Open Week. I took an absolute beating. Before we get into the Travelers, we are presented, as always, by RickRunGoods.com. All the stats, all the tools that I will be referencing during the podcast can all be found on RickRunGoods.com. All of my written content, if you want to ask me any questions in the Slack channel, just head on over to rickrungood.com and make sure you type in Andy when you sign up. We would love to have you as part of the community. Speaking of the community, once again, just incredibly humbled by the amount of people that consume my stuff this week and shared my stuff and interacted with me. I've got some, we'll say semi-big news coming down the pike with the podcast in a couple weeks. And you know it is genuinely, genuinely, genuinely because uh, of all the people that listen to me ramble every week. Same thing with the reviews. And I, I hate the giveaway stuff. I get so turned off by that stuff when people overdo it. I think it's really tacky. Trust me. That's why I only harp on it four times a year. Uh, because these major weeks... They're just huge. Um, I see it in the numbers. There's way more people listening. Uh, there are more people that hopefully find me on those weeks and you know, then stick around for regular golf weeks. I get a lot more, I found you U.S. Open Week or I found you Masters Week and I stuck around. Um, so those are the huge ones to me. So massive thank you again for all of those who left a review. The winner was at DFS underscore MKE. Mike in Milwaukee is his Twitter name. Mike, I was just in Milwaukee last year for the Ryder Cup. Beautiful city you got over there. Um, I will have already sent you a DM probably by the time you're listening to this. But once again, thanks to all that left a review. We will we will absolutely run it back for the Open Championship, which is kind of crazy how soon that is. Uh, but anyway, just a genuine thank you to all who supported my stuff in any way, shape, or form last week. Those major weeks, they're a lot. I uh, <laughs> I barely get any sleep, but I love them more than anything. The show with Kobe, I'm really glad you guys enjoy that one. Um, I think we've got something there. It's a very easy podcast to do, if that makes sense. I'll say that. And I don't always feel like all podcasts are naturally that easy. But for whatever reason, maybe because we talk a bunch off air, those ones just really seem to work. Or at least people seem to respond really positively to those, which I appreciate because we release those ones on Wednesday morning. So they don't have a huge half-life before the tournament starts, right? So it really means a lot that you guys seek that one out. So we'll keep those ones coming. It's a new part of major week that I really, really look forward to. You know, on Thursday night too, I did chat Chad Eckerd's podcast with uh Josh and Darbo was the name of the other guy. I think this can be found on the Fantasy Golf Pod YouTube channel. And I would I would assume that they have it up on p- podcast platforms as well. We talked about how people treat each other on the internet. My philosophy when it comes to, I guess, content, 
and like Twitter in general, and I guess mental health in general. I thought it was a really good conversation. I got a little deep in that one. Um, and it's obviously evergreen, right? Like you can check that one out forever. There's no time sensitivity to that. So go check that one out if you have that, if you have the time. I think you'll enjoy it. All right, US Open week. Uh, I got pretty dusted, to be honest with you. I think uh, I think a lot of people got dusted to a certain extent. So when I looked at DraftKings for the first time on Saturday night, I'm recording this early on Sunday morning. I was surprised that I had like one or two lineups uh, that I guess are going to give me a shot at a main cast. But I mean, I track this every single week uh, for over a year. This was the lowest amount of players in my pool that made it through the cut since I've been tracking, which again is a little bit over a year. Uh, even less than when I got the wave stack completely wrong at the players. Uh, but I think I had nine out of 20 make the cut. Zero six of sixes. One or two five of sixes. And you know, it's funny. Um, I always go back and try and analyze like what I missed. Pretty much all the decisions that I made, you know, I, I don't want to say I would have made them again because obviously I would have wanted to win money next time, but I understand why I made them. I mean, the course played pretty much exactly how I thought it was going to play. I think I got the type of player that I was looking for correct. You know, I didn't expect them to wa- uh, to water the greens on Friday afternoon. I thought that was a travesty, which by the way, if you're victor lapping over a weather stack, getting the weather stack right, because there was a pretty sizable advantage. It's not because the wind was that crazier on one side of the draw. It's because they watered the greens on Friday afternoon, which I don't think anyone could have predicted. And then the reason why they did that is they they thought some some blustery weather was going to come in. And the weather didn't come. And Friday afternoon ended up being super receptive. And I even did stack a little bit, but I didn't really go as aggressively as I guess I should have. I mean, I don't know. I guess the big miss was, I guess I took too much of a chance on the live guys at low ownership. I mean, I played DJ, Louie, Gooch, and Sergio. All those guys were sub five. And, you know, Louie wasn't part of the plan, but I was sitting there on Wednesday night, and this is just proof that tinkering is never a good idea. And I had Keegan in there, and I was looking at Louie Ustazen, who's been so damn good in this tournament, at half the ownership of Keegan Bradley at a U.S. Open at the same price. And I was like, wait a second, what am I doing here? That's not right. So at the 11th hour, I switched all 25% Keegan to 25% Louie. That was not smart. And then I basically just had all my sub 7.5 guys outside of Harmon, Munoz, and Neesmith. Um, Just mess. Webb, Siwoo, Luke List, Gooch, Sergio, Victor Perez. These guys all just missed. Most of them by one stroke. So, shit happens. 
And then you add Berger and Finau into the mix. See ya. I mean, you know, I did some late tinkering, I guess, which was dumb. The Keegan to Louis switch. But, you know, also on Wednesday night, I was like, yeah, I think Rom actually is going to be like 13%, which he was. So he even went there and ended up playing Rom, which meant sacrificing Will Z. You know, so I guess the one thing I'd kick myself for is playing DJ instead of Zalatoris. But I was always going to play. There was no scenario where I wasn't going to play Dustin Johnson this week at 3% ownership. That is just something, if you've listened to me, if you've been listening to me for a while, you know that that is just something I'm fundamentally always going to do 10 times out of 10. And yeah, I love Will Zalatoris. But 15% Will Zalatoris, 3% Dustin Johnson. If you gave me 5-1 to one odds in a Willie Z DJ matchup this week, for better or worse, just got to be honest, I'm always going to take that chance there. Um, so anyway, no one cares. I guess I just wanted to complain slash be transparent when I miss, which I did this week. And same thing with the betting card. Just to be totally honest... On some further, deeper introspection, that one was all ego. (laughs) I was kind of feeling myself. I've hit a bunch of outrights this year. Huge bet on JT at the last major. Been up a ton betting golf. Best season yet so far. And I was kind of just like, you know what? This is my favorite tournament of the year. I just got cocky. And... I wanted to call it slash I fell into a trap, which I'm usually very good at avoiding where I ended up betting on what I wanted to happen instead of betting on what I thought was going to happen. And yeah, there was a little, fuck you guys, Xander can do this. There was a little, you know, I don't think that Cantlay should be a cross off in the majors. I don't think he's going to suck forever in majors. I thought the fact of how much he has sucked was overblown too. He's never missed a cut in the U.S. Open. I thought that was going a little too far. So there was a little, oh, you think Cantlay sucks? Okay. (laughs) And then Neiman. I just love Neiman, and I loved everything about him this week, which is whatever. Uh, Fleetwood, I knew that one was fucking dead. When 50 people liked that Fleetwood picture that I tweeted the week before the U.S. Open, that's not a good sign. Um, I knew that <laughs> a lot of trouble. And luckily, I ended up avoiding him in DraftKings. But, you know, as far as the U.S. Open goes, I'm recording this early on Sunday morning. I'm going to save my actual U.S. Open takes until after the tournament. I do have a lot to say on this week. But the week after a major, I always like to just bring a buddy on and end up spending more time recapping the major than, you know, talking about the actual next event. Because I think there's just, I don't know, 20 weird slash interesting things that happen during major week. And I just want to be able to give some of that stuff airtime. So we'll bring on Kirshner tomorrow and do some yelling about the U.S. Open. Uh, Let's dig into the Travelers, though. The Travelers Championship. One of the most fun weeks on the PGA Tour. 
You know, I have a wedding this weekend. I am flying out to New York on Wednesday. I'll be in New York for the next two months. And I really want to go to this tournament. Uh, My cousin's getting married, unfortunately. Not unfortunately. Unfortunate timing. I'm really excited for that wedding. It's in Rhode Island. But I have a lot of friends going to the the tournament. Um, And I think players really love the tournament, too. I've heard it's great for fans, but I... I've heard it's a tournament that treats its players very well. They take care of the caddies. It really seems to mean a lot to the community. I went to school. Um, I went to high school just down the road for there at Hotchkiss, and and a lot of my old Hotchkiss buddies go to that tournament. You know, I think that's why we do continue to see good fields here. Um, The fact that it's like an hour or two away from Boston doesn't hurt either. But we've got Rory... JT, Xander, Scotty Scheffler, um, Sam Burns, Patrick Cantlay, Tony Finau, Joaquin Neiman, Jordan Spieth was a late ad, Sung JM, Will Zalatoris, Brooks Kepka. Hovland was in the field and then he WD, and everyone is saying that he's going to live because of that, which is not what I've heard. I could be wrong. I just don't know if he wanted to play the Travelers uh, after he dropped nine strokes and 12 holes to miss the cut at the U.S. Open. Um, But from everything that I've heard is that the next big fish that Liv has is not Hovland, it's Hideki. Uh, Which, by the way, I think is a stroke of genius for Liv. And actually a better get than Hovland for them. You want to talk about cornering an international market. Well, that dude's fucking Tiger Woods in Japan. Not that it appears that Liv is very concerned with making money, but for what it's worth, I mean, Hideki's a walking ATM if they ever need Japanese investment, which again, I don't even know if they need that. Um, You know, another guy that was on the Traveler's website as a commit, but is not in the field is Answer. From what I've heard, he is gone. That one makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, But if you are playing this week, I would be pretty shocked if anyone who's currently in the Traveler's Field this week signs on with Liv in the short term, in the very short term, at least with Portland. Um, You know, I've heard a few Neiman rumblings uh, that they were going after all of Team Chile, which would include Mito as well. As of now, Neiman and Mito are both in the traveler's field. If they withdraw in the next day or so, I think that's a pretty big tell, right? By the way, Brooks is in the field at the travelers. We've heard a lot of rumblings about him. We thought Varner was as good as gone. Well, Michael Jordan got involved. By the way, if I was Jay Monahan, that's who I'd be on the phone with is Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods, and Jimmy Dunn. Those would be the three guys that I would go after to try and convince some of the players that might be on the fence. And Jimmy Dunn has already been extremely vocally against Liv. Bob Herrick, uh, it's on SI.com. I would encourage everyone to check it out. If you don't know who Jimmy Dunn is, he's one of the most well-connected men in golf, if not the most. Uh, But Bob Herrick had a great piece interviewing him He's the president of Seminole, by the way. Um, and Jimmy just, he doesn't give a fuck at all 
Uh, I mean, he's one of, maybe we'll say formally, DJ's best friends. They play in the Seminole member guest every year. And Jimmy basically said it was a coward move, for for lack of better words. Um, But I digress. Varner is in the field after that talk with MJ. Um, So I don't think Varner is is gone either anymore. Um, And then, you know, we've heard the Xander rumblings. And listen, I can definitively tell you right now, unless people that are very close to Xander, and I mean very close to Xander, are lying to me, which I guess you could never rule out, but I would be surprised because I've built up a relationship with some of these people over time and that generally isn't something that I think is in their DNA. Xander's not going anywhere. Oh, but he played the Saudi International. Fuck off, dude. Xander is safe. For now. Trust me. I mean, I I understand that you cannot rule out anyone long-term when you're dealing with a bottomless pit of money like this. You know, I don't really think you can put anyone in red ink. But for the time being, from everything that I've heard from sources very, very close to Xander, he is not going anywhere. Okay, enough about that. Former winners at the Travelers. Harris English won last year in a playoff over Kramer Hickok at 35 to 1. Dustin Johnson won at 19 under uh, in 2020. That's like the second tournament back from COVID. He won at 30 to 1. It's a nice little DJ drift moment. And then you've got Ches Reevy, Bubba Watson, Jordan Spieth, Russell Knox, Bubba Watson again, Kevin Streelman, Ken Duke, Mark Leishman. Those are the last 10 years. So despite the fact that this is really a course that seemingly we'll say anyone can compete on, we haven't really seen a winner above 80 to one since Kevin Streelman in 2014. We got Streelman, Duke, and Leishman all won at 125 to one or higher. But since then, you know, Bubba won at a very short number. Spieth won at a very short number. Uh, and everyone else was in that 30 to 70 range, which is a range that I think I'll mostly be targeting. I actually really like some some bombs this week. Uh, but let's talk about the golf course. TBC River Highlands, designed by Pete Dye in 1982. Some renovation work was done here in 2016. They removed a lot of bunkers. Um, they repositioned them a lot too to pinch in some of the driving areas. Five of the greens were rebuilt. Not a whole lot in terms of the character of the course changing. Par 70, 6,814 yards. Water comes into play on five holes, but it's still ranked 14th out of 40 courses last year in penalty strokes per round. So you actually can get yourself into some trouble here. It also ranked 10th out of 40 courses on number of reloads per round, meaning having to go re, uh, re-tee or re-hit from the same location. The fairways, like most, like many, we'll say Northeast Coast courses, bentgrass with poa. Rough is Kentucky bluegrass with fescue, four inches. It can be a bit of a problem at times, especially with some moisture. Greens are 5,000 square feet, small, with bent grass and poa running 12 on the stem. You know, the area, this area usually gets some rainfall 
footfall around this time of year leading into the tournament. So the greens are generally pretty receptive here and the rough is pretty lush as well. Last year, it was officially the shortest course now on the PGA Tour. It had the shortest set of par fours and par fives on the PGA Tour. But with that being said, in terms of difficulty, it still played, you know, right around tour average. And like I said, despite having the shortest set of par fours and par fives on the PGA Tour, its par fours played right around tour average in terms of difficulty. And it had actually the eighth most difficult set of par fives on the PGA Tour. You know, when I was going through it, I kind of came to one conclusion about this golf course. It's a really weird course to model out. I changed my model a, a lot of times in the past 48 hours because I really think that all styles of play can succeed here. I mean, we've seen extremely short hitters like a Ches Reavy, a Kevin Streelman, a Ken Duke, a Russell Knox, a Kramer Hickok have a ton of success here. We've also seen Bubba Watson, Dustin Johnson, Mark Leishman have a ton of success here. I mean, there's one year when I think we got like Bubba Watson and Corey Pavin in a playoff together, which just speaks to how cool the golf course this is. I mean, on paper, it's a course that you look at and think that it should produce a winning score of 25 under par every year. And yet the winning score is always mid to low teens, sometimes as low as 12 under which I'm having a tough time kind of figuring out why it always plays harder than you'd think. And I guess my best explanation for that is that Pete Dye's architecture just does a really good job of standing up to modern technology. Um, it's a 6,800-yard golf course that routinely plays right around even par or just slightly under par. And I think that's because there's a lot of visual deception here. They do a really good job of tucking the pins here. The rough can get pretty thick and sticky. The greens are on the smaller side. And while not overly undulating, it's a pretty tough course to get up and down at if you're missing greens. And I think it's pretty balanced in the required skill set that is needed to succeed here, right? Like I think driving accuracy is really important, but we've also seen Bubba and DJ figure out a way to win ranking outside of the top 50 and driving accuracy percentage all three times that Bubba won here. He ranked outside of the top 50 and driving accuracy percentage. So you don't have to hit the fairway. Ches if you're long, Ches Reeve, Kevin Strillman, Ken Duke, Freddie Jacobson, on the other hand, all inside the top 15 and driving accuracy. So if you're not long, you do have to hit the fairway. You know, you could say that it's a wedge course. Um, with so many of these shots coming from between 125 and 175, and that's true. But the degree of difficulty with the irons, uh, with the approach shots, are actually not all that challenging. And the amount of strokes gained that have come on approach are still below tour average. You could call it a short game course because there's a lot of challenge around the greens, but you know, it has a greens and regulation percentage of 65. It's not like that's all that low. So it's not like players are going to be missing greens left and right here. So you can't really go all that heavy on short game, and you can't really call it a putting contest either. I mean, you absolutely have to be putting well, but there's still enough challenge from tee to green. So overall, 
I'm pretty balanced this week. I'm really just looking for a balanced skill set, right? And can you do a couple of different things? Um, if you're short, are you super accurate? If you're long, you can succeed here too, but can you keep the ball on the planet? Um, great wedge player, above average short game, who hopefully has a really nice history of success on a lot of these shorter courses, Pete Dye courses. And Spieth talks, Spieth talks about how, you know, you've got to work the ball both ways here. You got to be fearless in playing different shots. You can't just get out there and just step up and hit draws the whole day. It kind of forces you to hit different shots, which I like, by the way. Ches Reeve actually, here's a quote from Ches Reeve. You can shape it both ways off the tee. Hit every club in your back from longer irons to short irons. It's just a test of all your shots. That's something I like. I'm a shot maker. I like to work it both ways. I've always loved the layout since the first time I came here. Just the way the holes are shaped, you can shape shots and think around the greens. It's a great challenge and something I really enjoy. And you think about any golf course that Bubba Watson and Jordan Spieth have had success, and there you go. This is a golf course that you can play in a bunch of different ways. You can be creative. You can hit driver on every hole. You can hit driver on zero holes. You can hit a bunch of draws off the tee. You can hit a bunch of fades off the tee. And that's why I think you see these shot makers and guys that really just, you know, go out and play golf, you know, not really these track man golfers, but shot makers have so much success here. So let's run through what specifically I'm looking for. Off the tee, 18.5% of strokes gain have come off the tee, which is healthily above the tour average of 15.2%. TPC River Highlands ranked... 13th out of 40 courses last year in strokes gain off the tee difficulty. It has historically ranked in the top half of strokes gain off the tee difficulty each of the last five years. So it's a pretty tough course off the tee, despite the fact that the fairways, like they're actually kind of wide, but the penalty for missing them is pretty severe here. So TBC River Highlands ranked ninth out of 40 courses in missed fairway penalty. This rough can definitely be a problem, especially with some moisture. It ranked 11th out of 40 courses in difference of average strokes from the fairway and the rough. Uh, it has also ranked 6 out of 40 courses in fraction of missed fairway that results in a penalty stroke. And it's not like this course is littered with water, but it just kind of displays the importance of hitting the fairways here. Um, it's a strange course off the tee, to be honest with you, because it's not particular, particularly difficult to hit fairways here, especially considering the fact that you don't really need to hit driver. If you don't want to driving accuracy percentage is comfortably above tour average. And there's not some huge correlation between hitting a bunch of fairways and finishing top five or top 10, but the penalty for missing big is pretty great. We've seen guys like DJ, and Bubba Watson keep the ball in play off the tee and hit it long and be able to hit a bunch of wedges out of the rough, which is why I think it's a good week to look at good drive percentage. And I'm also looking at strokes gain off the tee on shorter courses. I think there are a lot of ways to play a golf course like this off the tee, and I wanted to find players that find a way to dominate on these shorter courses off the tee, whether that's through hitting a bunch of 
driver and and having a bunch of wedges in or hitting a bunch of fairways. I don't really care. But I think looking at whether somebody gains strokes off the tee at a course like Torrey Pines, where you know you're forced to hit driver on every tee shot and you don't really have to shape your ball at all. I want to see that you're doing it on a course that gives you options off the tee, how you're doing on those types of courses. Um, Approach 30.1% of strokes gain have come on approach, which is healthily below the tour average of 34.6 Kramer Hickok, Brian Harmon, Bryce Garnett, Bo Hostler. These guys all finished top 10 losing strokes and approach last year. So, I would not say that elite iron play is a prerequisite. English won here last year, only gaining 1.5 on approach. Hickok made a playoff, losing strokes on approach. Leishman finished third, gaining only 0.2. And Harmon and Garnett finished fifth, losing 1.9 and 3.1 on approach, respectively. And it ranked about tour average in terms of strokes gain approach difficulty and kind of historically the same deal, right? It, it kind of always ranks right around tour average in greens and regulation percentage, small greens, but a lot of the time you're coming in with a scoring club. And it's really that 125 to 175 range that you kind of want to corner in on. You know, we're talking 20% of approach shots coming from 125 to 150, and then a whopping like almost 28% of approach shots coming from 150 to 175. Both of those are well above tour average. And all the other proximity buckets are right around tour average. So it's definitely a short iron course. Um, Almost 50% of approach shots are coming from 125 to 175, which is really the bucket that you want to be looking at here. Here's a quote from Bubba Watson. First hole, wedge. Second hole, wedge. Third hole, wedge. These are the approach shots. Next hole. Eight, nine, or wedge. Next hole, five or six iron. Next hole, three iron, going forward in two. Next hole, wedge. Next hole, eight iron. Next hole, wedge. Next hole, wedge. Next hole, wedge. Or if you drive the green, you can putt. Next hole is an eight or nine. 17 is a nine or a wedge. 18 is a wedge. (laughs) So when you look at that, why would I not want to play here if I'm hitting that many wedges? Bubba, that is still Bubba talking, by the way. Uh, it doesn't matter if I'm in the rough or not. Those are the clubs I'm hitting. End of Bubba quote. So there you go. A lot of short irons on this course. Even if you aren't Bubba Watson in terms of length and some of those wedges turn into nine irons, you know, it's still a course where you can have a lot of scoring clubs coming in. And then around the green, 13.6% of strokes gain have come around the green, which is a little bit below the tour average of 145 but that number jumps to 15.4 when looking at it historically. TPC River Highlands has ranked 10th out of 40 courses in strokes gain around the green. And historically, it's ranked in the top 10 in difficulty around the green every single year. In 2016, 2018, 2020, it ranked as the second hardest course around the green on the PGA Tour. And in 2017, it ranked as the hardest course around the green on the PGA Tour. It ranks six out of 40 courses up and down percentage from the fairway. And historically, it always ranks in the top six. First in 2017 and 2018. Second in 2019 and 2020. So it's it's tough to get up and down here. It really is. There's something about the short grass here around the greens that 
pros really just seem to struggle with. My guess is that has to do with when it gets a little damper. It's kind of ch- it's tough to chip off uh, wet short grass. It's really tough to chip off wet short grass. Um, and it ranked 13th out of 40 courses in up and down percentage from the rough. And historically, it ranks top 10 nearly every single year in up and down percentage from the rough. It ranked 15th out of 40 in the bunkers, right? So I'm not going crazy on short game, but the rough around the greens um, I think is challenging. And the bunkers here are pretty tough. And I definitely want to identify guys that have an above average short game despite the greens and regulation percentage here being pretty high. And then for putting, 37.9% of strokes gain have come putting. That's just slightly above the tour average of 36%. The historical average drops down to 35%, which is basically like right at tour average. And CPC River Highlands, 20th out of 40 courses in strokes gain putting difficulty. Right around tour average. Uh, and it ranks pretty much right around tour average in like inside five feet, five to 15 feet, greater than 15 feet. Like it's a moderate course in T to green difficulty. So you still have to make a ton of putts. Um, I would not call these greens particularly undulating or tough, um, but you still got a putt here. The top 20 on the leaderboard last year, all gained strokes putting and the top five on the leaderboard all gained over four strokes putting. 2020 and 2019 told kind of a similar story. Um, But overall, again, I do not see a ton of legitimate challenge to the putting surfaces. I think that this is, it's a POA bent blend, which is different than a West Coast POA. Uh, But all these guys that tend to, what's interesting is all these guys that tend to play well at Riviera and Pebble Beach, like a DJ, a Jordan Spieth, a Bubba Watson, even like a Ches Reeve or Kevin Streelman, you know, they all play well here too. So I kind of broke it down to bent and poa putting. I basically just, I wanted to take Bermuda completely out of the equation. And I looked specific, specifically at kind of these East coast bent poa blends. Uh, a Detroit golf club, for example, features this poa bent blend. Uh, that is pretty common in the Northeast. The problem is that the PGA Tour doesn't really go to the Northeast that much anymore. So we don't have like an active group of courses with this specific putting surface that we can draw from outside of Detroit Golf Club and some scattered major championship venues. You know, Beth Page is a course that has these types of greens, Brookline even. Um, and in terms of scoring stats, I think that because of all the wedges, you're going to have on this course opportunities gained is a great stat to look at uh, because that measures the amount of birdie looks that players are going to give themselves inside 15 feet. I think that's a really good one to look at. And then comp courses, course history, you know, there is definitely some nuance to this course and the same players tend to play well here year after year out of the regular courses on the PGA tour schedule. TPC River Highlands has the seventh most predictive course history behind only Augusta, Bay Hill, Colonial, Harbortown, TPC Scottsdale, and Wiley. Now, you can absolutely show up and win here on your first appearance. Spieth did it just off the top of my head. So I would not rule out Amito or someone like that. But in terms of... Uh, predicting performance year in and year out. 
the same types of players tend to always show up here. And in terms of comp courses, I think there are a lot of good courses that you could look at with TPC River Highlands. It falls into that short positional bucket, right? Although of the short positional ones, I guess Colonial too. I do believe that you can take advantage of this course with the driver. Um, I think of all the shorter positional ones like a Sedgefield or, the, or a Harbor Town, I think you can do more with your driver here to get a leg up than some of those other ones. Um, we've seen an aggressive strategy pay off very many times here, as well as Colonial too, recently at least, um, in the past couple of years. Uh, but the ones that I like the most, TBC Potomac, Sedgefield, Harbortown, Colonial. TPC Potomac, definitely a harder golf course than TPC River Highlands. Uh, but I like that there's still this big emphasis on keeping the ball in play off the tee. Neither courses are overly long. Very similar agronomy. Lush rough. Northeast. A lot of similar aesthetics with those. With Sedgefield, I know that's a Bermuda course. Uh, but there's a big emphasis on positioning off the tee at Sedgefield. A lot of wedges at Sedgefield. And, you know, it's not a surprise that we've seen a lot of these guys pop up at both courses. Same with Harbortown. Pete Dye, positioning off the tee. Harbortown is a little bit more, I'd say, of a placement course than TBC River Highlands. I think you can get a little bit more aggressive at a course like TBC River Highlands. But in terms of the sight lines, you know, the visual deception, the Pete Dye aspect of it all, and there's a lot in common there. And then I like Colonial for similar reasons as well. Same vibe off the tee where it just kind of gives you options. You can win on that course playing conservatively and hitting a ton of fairways. Or you can do what Jason Kokrak and Sam Burns to a certain extent have done in recent years and play more aggressively, hit more drivers, cut more of the corners. And TBZ River Highlands is the same way. You can kind of play it like a Streelman or a Ken Duke or a Ches Reeve, or you can play it like a Bubba or a DJ and still experience the same level of success. They're both shorter courses. That's why I like Colonial so much. They're both shorter courses that invite both strategies and allow both strategies to succeed. Whereas Harbortown, for example, is you have it's a little more homogenous in the strategy that it's asking of you. Um, and I really, I really like the opportunity to do a, to play a course like TPC River Highlands a bunch of different ways. There are a bunch of other good ones too that you know have very similar leaderboards. You know your Web Kevin Kisner courses, Wiley, Austin Country Club, TPC Sawgrass. I mean the list goes on. None of those are terrible. Um, so just to be able to get more weight down on those courses, I took a pretty heavy look at all the shorter courses under 7,200 yards. Um, so just a really balanced model this week. Again, I don't think there's one clear formula here. So I went pretty specific in trying to identify like all of the potential roadmaps that I think a player can use to succeed at a course like this. And I feel great about it. I'm dangerous coming off a, uh, coming off a bad week. Although the model wasn't the problem at the U.S. Open. It was the decision-making <laughs> in spite of the model. Uh, so here we go. I, com I combined all this into a model, all the comp courses, the specific types of formulas I'm looking for, the wedge play, all the different putting stats. And here's who it shot out. 
Rory McIlroy, number one, who is pretty much in John Robb mode right now in the sense that he's going to be number one um, pretty much at any golf course. Same with Justin Thomas. You know, I could probably run a Tory Pines model right now, and my guess is that Rory McIlroy and Justin Thomas would still be one-two. Number three is Andrew Shoffley. Four is Tony Finau. Five is Patrick Cantlay. Six is Joaquin Neiman. Seven, Sam Burns. So, you know, for all the nuance I thought I was putting into my model, I guess that's um, justification that I'm looking at the right stuff, but it basically spit out the top seven players. And then we get our Russell Henley, uh, who's pretty much a lock to, to be in the top 10 of, at a course like this would, when I model it out. Scotty Scheffler, number nine, a little bit lower. 10, Webb Simpson. 11, Jordan Spieth. 12, Christian Bezadenhout. 13, Brian Harmon. I remember Brian Harmon was mega chalk last year, and he's having a good U.S. Open. So I imagine unless he shoots a 78 on Sunday at the U.S. Open, mega chalk for Harmon again. I think he delivered, too. I think answer was mega chalk, and I was shitting on it, and he was like four over through six. And then he shot like 64 on Friday to make the cut. Oh my God, it was miserable. The answer people just thinking they're the smartest people in the room. And then he ended up finishing fourth on the tournament because that's what always fucking happens to those chalky guys. They have no business making the cut. And then when they make the cut, auto top 10. Anyway, Harmon 13th, Sungjae 14th. Interesting flop lag on Sungjae this week. I'm I'm very int- both actually these next three guys that all missed the cut. Sungjae, Mito, and Harold Varner. I think all those guys are pretty interesting. 17 CT Pan. CT Pan is just a mainstay on these shorter courses. 18 Cameron Davis. That's a good bet. There you go. I just gave you one right there because I don't have a ton on early leans. Cameron Davis is a good bet. Tom Hoagie, 19. Keegan Bradley, 20. So, you know, there's a lot of the elite players, your Rory's, your JT's, your Sam Burns's, your Joaquin Neiman's, your Patrick Cantlay's. Uh, who else am I forgetting? Your, I guess, Brooks Kapka's, Will Zalatoris's, Jordan Spieth's, Xander Shoffley's, Scotty Scheffler's that I haven't really totally dug into yet because I really want to see how they finish up at the U.S. Open and I want to see what all their stats look like. Um, so I haven't done, you know, like a full breakdown of the top yet. But I'm liking, I'm probably, it's going to be a, a lot of guys sub 100. I'm, I mean, or uh, 100 plus that I like. Like I said, I think Cameron Davis is a really good bet. Adam Svensson is a guy that has really caught my eye. Um, he's coming off a 21st at the Canadian Open where he gained two off the tee, two on approach. I think there's the first time Svensson gained in all four categories in his entire career. And the off the tee and approach got better. And now he's made four cuts in a row. And he's, you know, he's actually made it. He, he's pretty consistent for a rookie. Seventh at the Sony Open. We like that. Ninth at the Honda. And those are courses, those are both Bermuda, 26th at Heritage, by the way, 40th at Colonial. 
So all those better finishes are coming on these shorter positional courses. But both his Corn Ferry Tour wins came on bent grass. So, you know, I think Svensson's a supremely talented player. And there is an element of unknown with him that I think you can get by betting on the upside where he just might be really good. Whereas, you know, I kind of know what I'm getting with a Kevin Streelman or a CT Pan. Um, so I like Adam Svensson a lot. Bezadenhout, I guess, too. I think Bezadenhout is a really, really good DraftKings play this week. Not sold on him as like a guy that can contend. I don't know how many times I've seen Bezadenhout at like in the mix on Sunday with the chance to win a tournament. But in terms of like a guy who can finish top 20, I like him a lot. He kind of jumped out to me. He kind of jumped off the page. 15th at Colonial, 5.2 on approach. And then a lot of these guys, you know, you're Doug Gims, you're Tyler Duncans, Grio is, uh, <laughs> Grio might be coming back into my life. Chesfest might be coming back into my life. I always like me some Martin Laird, always like me some CT Pan. So it's going to be, we're, we're kind of getting back to my roots here. We're getting back to my roots with some of these gross guys, probably going to bet a lot of them. And probably one guy at the top. I don't know. We'll have to see. I think that coming off a U.S. Open specifically might be a little bit different from coming off another major. I think that the U.S. Open probably of all the majors is probably takes the biggest physical, mental, and emotional toll on a golfer. So, you know, we'll have to see how I feel about a JT, a Rory, all those guys. I I don't. I don't really know how I, if I see them, I think a lot of these guys, like they just love this tournament It's a really good tournament. I think it means a lot to the PGA tour right now for some of those bigger guys to show up to tournaments like this. I think probably behind the scenes, Monaghan is really begging and pleading with them. Hey man, like just at least right now, like with Portland coming up and probably some more big names going you know, play the fucking travelers. It's an hour from Boston, right? So we'll have to see about those guys. Uh, check back in on, uh, we'll be back on this podcast feed Monday evening, Tuesday morning, doing a full U.S. Open recap with Kirshner. I'm sure we will both be very logical about uh, what we saw transpire today. We'll do some fun stuff. We'll do some overreaction, proper reaction games. Uh, that I love. And uh, that will do it for me. You can find me also as well on the scramble Tuesdays and Fridays. Very excited to uh, talk to Rick about everything he saw and heard at the U S open odds checker article with some of my outright bets will be out on Monday and enjoy your bets um, or enjoy the U S open. Good luck with your bets. I should say, and have a great Sunday. Happy father's day. Cheers.